Well, please turn your Bibles now to Isaiah chapter 28. We are back in earnest into our studies in Isaiah. We had a little introduction a couple of weeks ago, um, and then a little diversion last week for June's baptism. But we are now uh, back in earnest for a few weeks. Uh, a few weeks, he said, optimistically, we all know probably a few months uh, into this next section in Isaiah, beginning here in chapter 28. Um, so if you have your Bibles, turn there and follow along as I read. Ah, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim, and the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley of those overcome with wine. Behold, the Lord has one who is mighty and strong, like a storm of hail, a destroying tempest, like a storm of mighty overflowing waters. He casts down to the earth with his hand. The proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim will be trodden underfoot, and the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley, will be like a first ripe fig before the summer. When someone sees it, he swallows it as soon as it is in his hand. And that day the Lord of hosts will be like a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people and a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment and strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. These also reel with wine and stagger with strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They are swallowed by wine. They stagger with strong drink. They reel in vision. They stumble in giving judgment. For all tables are full of filthy vomit with no space left. To whom will he teach knowledge, and to whom will he explain the message? Those who are weaned from the milk, those taken from the breast, for it is precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. For by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to this people, to whom he has said, this is rest, give rest to the weary, and this is repose, yet they would not hear. And the word of the Lord will be to them precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, that they may go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers, who rule this people in Jerusalem. Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death, and, Sheol we, and with Sheol we have an agreement. When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us. For we have made lies our refuge, and in falsehood we have taken shelter. Therefore thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who is laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. And I will make justice the line, and righteousness the plumb line, and hail will sweep away the refuge of lies, and waters will overwhelm the shelter. Then your covenant with death will be annulled, and your agreement with Sheol will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge passes through, you will be beaten down by it. As often as it passes through, it will take you for morning by morning. It will pass through and by day and by night 
And it will be sheer terror to understand the message, for the bed is too short to stretch oneself on, and the covering too narrow to wrap oneself in. For the Lord will rise up as on Mount Perizim, as in the valley of Gibeon He will be roused to do His deed. Strange is His deed, and to work His work. Alien is His work. Now, therefore, do not scoff, lest your bonds be made strong. For I have heard a decree of destruction from the Lord God of hosts against the whole land. Give ear and hear my voice. Pay attention and hear my speech. Does he who plows for sowing plow continually? Does he continually open and harrow his ground? When he has leveled its surface, does he not scatter dill so cumin and put in wheat in rows and barley in its proper place and amor as the border? For he is rightly instructed as God teaches him. Dill is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is a cartwheel rolled over cumin, but dill is beaten out with a stick and cumin with a rod. Does one crush grain for bread? No, he does not thresh it forever. When he drives his cartwheel over it with his horses, he does not crush it. This also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. Amen. Well, in the last section that we looked at in Isaiah, we were operating uh, on a high level. After hearing God's assertion of His Lordship over the nations in chapters 13 through 23, an assertion that put the lie to any idea in Judah that security could be found under the protection of the gods of the other nations, after hearing God's assertion, essentially declaring that all the earth was His, in chapters 24 through 27, where we last were in Isaiah, the, 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 the narrative zoomed out, and we were taken from the world of the here and now and taken into the world of eschatology, into the world of the, the last things. And the curtain was lifted, and we were given a sobering insight into the realities of the day of judgment. Did you remember how in those chapters we were vividly given the image of the two cities, the world divided up into one of two cities, the city of man, which seemed so powerful and glorious and joyful, but which in the end would crumble before the judgment of God against sin, and the city of God, which seems so weak and so fragile, but which in the end would be blessed by God and grow and prosper and outstrip all the glories of anything that human culture or cunning could ever produce. Really, the question that lies at the heart of the book of Isaiah is the ultimate existential question. The question that lies at the heart of Isaiah is the question that lies at the heart of every human heart, the question that everyone is trying to answer. How do I know that I will be okay? In this fallen and corrupt world in which we find ourselves so vulnerable, surrounded by intense uncertainty, the question that we are all trying to answer is, how do I know that I will be okay? Really, if you want to understand all that's going on in Isaiah, it is the quest to find the answer to that question. 
in Judah, the people to whom Isaiah is preaching in the early 700s BC, they were looking for the answer to that question in all the wrong places. Now, these were, of course, the covenanted people of God. These were the people who had Jerusalem as their capital and temple at the very center of that capital, this great monument to the Emmanuel principle that runs throughout the Old Testament, that gospel, that good news that God is gracious and merciful, and He will wash away the guilt of His sinful people. That's what the temple proclaimed. It was this great, this great monument to the gospel, the gospel commemorated in stone, so that if anyone in Judah ever forgot the grace of God or the tremendous love of God for them, they need only to look up and be reminded of that radical source of their fundamental security. Judah just needed to answer that question, how do I know I'll be okay, by looking at the temple and saying, God is gracious, and God is merciful. That's how I know that I'll be okay. But yet, by Isaiah's day, by this time in the early 700s BC, all of that was almost entirely forget forgotten. Yes, the, the temple got a little ritualistic nod every now and then, but it was a hollow acknowledgement. The Sagidians sought security in political alliances and in cultural conformity. Their reasoning went, if only we could be like the other nations, then we'll be okay. If only we can get the cultural power brokers on our side and create strategic alliances, then we will be safe, and we can eat and drink, and we can be merry, and all will be well. And in chapters 24 through 27, God, in giving that great vision of the end of days, graciously lifted the curtain to show His faithless people that the things that they are going after are all hollow and deceptive and will ruin them in the end. Jeremiah, of course, preached against the very same things a uh, hundred years later. And in Jeremiah 2, the Lord described this casting about looking for peace and security in the things of the world like this. In Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, He says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And you get the image. God is saying, I'm, I'm the, the fountain of living waters. Whoever comes to me will never thirst again. If you think about the ancient Near East, to use modern parlance that's around in the eve of this COP conference, uh, the ancient Near East was water insecure, right? They would have water sometimes and sometimes not. They had wells that sometimes would be full and sometimes not. So, what do you do to create water security? You build a, a reservoir. But better than that, you find a fountain that never stops flowing. 
And God says, I'm the fountain, but, but they've turned away from me, and they've tried to dig out cisterns and reservoirs for themselves, but they are, they're broken. And so instead of giving rest, it will only create a ceaseless working to try and keep it full. These cisterns, they promised satisfaction, but they only delivered exhaustion. That's what Isaiah has just said. The city of man, it looks like a deep pool of water. You wander through the desert of life, and you come to the city of man, and it looks like this crystal clear, refreshing, glimmering reservoir, and you just want to dive right in and drink. But it's deceptive. It's broken. It can never give the rest and the satisfaction that it promises, and in the end, it will all just drain away to nothing. But on the other hand, there is the city of God, which in the last analysis will be vindicated. It will be that fountain of living waters, and that those who have come to the city of God, they might look frail and weak in the here and now, but in the end, they will be protected by God and established by God. And all who dwell within the city of God will find the security and the peace that their hearts crave. It will be those who dwell in the city of God who will be okay in the end. It's the message that Isaiah is pounding into the hearts of his hearers. But of course, Isaiah is a good teacher. For better, God through Isaiah is a good teacher. And so he doesn't just say this once and then walk away, right? We've noted this already, but it's worth observing as we move from that eschatological world into this new section. And Isaiah could have just said this once, couldn't he? This is the Word of God. Isaiah could have come with a brief exhortation, and that would have been sufficient, more than sufficient. All of this, in a sense, is gratuitous. It is a lavish act of God's grace to His disobedient people. But grace upon grace, Isaiah comes at this from different angles to illustrate and drive home to his readers this message of, of warning and, and exhortation. And so here we move now from that grand eschatological vision, that, that high level, and we come now back down into the nitty-gritty of contemporary politics. The historical situation that lies behind this chapter and the next few that we'll be looking at is the thread of Isaiah's aggression against Judah and the temptation for them to make an alliance with Egypt in order to secure their protection. And beginning here, we get a series of six woes or six laments that run through the end of chapter 33, all of which are urging Judah to put their trust in God rather than in politics. And it begins here in chapter 28 with this vision of Ephraim. Now, Ephraim is a region of the northern kingdom of Israel, and it's been used here, as Isaiah has used it previously, as shorthand for the whole of the northern kingdom of, of Israel. And the picture that Isaiah paints is really focused on Samaria, the, the capital city of that northern kingdom that he is referred to here as the, the crown of Ephraim. And the picture is one of Samaria as the city that is consumed with self-centered, self-reliant, and self-congratulatory indulgence. 
But to all appearances, Samaria, it's, it's beautiful. It stands at the head of this valley that Isaiah describes as running with wine. Right? It's a city that is reveling in the good times, that it has satisfied itself, that they will be okay because they have been politically savvy enough to make the right alliances, to forge the right connections, and no one's going to come against them. But the day is coming, warns the Lord, when it will all be wiped away. Verse 2, the Lord is going to call someone mighty and strong, and He will come like a storm of hail, like a destroying tempest, like an unstoppable flood, and all of the glory of Samaria and Ephraim and, and Israel, all of it will be wiped away in an instant, and they will be unable to provide even any semblance of resistance to this coming fate. That's the image that we find in verse 4, this image of a first ripe fig. It strikes us as maybe a bit of a non sequitur, but what he's saying is, a man's walking along the road, you see the first ripe figs, what does he do? He plugs it and he just puts it in his mouth and swallows it immediately. He says that's what their destruction is going to be like, as if there's not even a thought on the part of the invader. They're just going to swallow them up in an instant. But of course, this isn't a word of warning to Ephraim or Israel, at least not primarily. This is a warning to Judah, a warning to Judah to, to look to the north and to see that what is about to happen to Israel would portend what lay in store for Judah if they continued walking on that same road. And you understand this is a definite warning. And as we come down from the lofty heights of eschatological vision and into the world of contemporary politics, Isaiah here gives a warning a sign that will be fulfilled in just a few years, maybe even a year or two in 722 BC, when, when the entire northern kingdom would be swept away by the Assyrians and their population taken into exile essentially forevermore. And so, in contrast to those high-level visions of what would happen on the day of the Lord far into the future. Here, Isaiah gives to Judah a concrete warning, a test case by which they could discern the veracity of what he said to them. In Deuteronomy 18, verse 22, we're told plainly that the test of a true prophet is whether or not his prophecy comes true. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. And there is a sense in which this was needed. This, this immediate shortly fulfilled sign was needed because in Judah they were disregarding Isaiah's preaching as nothing more than childish babbling. Verse 9 tells us how Isaiah's preaching received a scoffing response. Now, this is one of these sections where it doesn't quite come over in, in English, but the way the Hebrew is written 
Verse 10 is, it's sing-song baby talk. They're saying that what Isaiah is saying, it's, it's just like a nursery rhyme. It's like, it's like, a, it's like Aesop's fables. It's, it's like one of these little scary stories that you tell to the children so that they behave. But, but us, sophisticated, urbane, educated, intellectual Judeans. And what Isaiah is saying, it is far below us. Maybe fine to scare the children, but for us, it's nonsense. Instead, we're told that they would rather have the prophets and priests that imitated the religious cultures that were around them, drinking themselves into these ecstatic stupors, and the people of Judah would rather follow the drunken visions of these faithless priests than submit to the Word of God preached by Isaiah. Like northern Israel, they would rather trust in these things than in the Word of God. But the warning is that the fate that is about to befall Ephraim is the fate that lays in store for them as, as well. At verse 17, now the, the focus, having turned to Judah, God says, I will make justice the line, and hail will sweep away the refuge of lies, and waters will overwhelm the shelter. Judah were on the verge of making a covenant with Egypt, an alliance that's referred to here as a covenant with death, and you understand why. Egypt were no less threatening to Judah's existence than Assyria was. Egypt didn't care about Judah. They only saw them as a foothold in the region that would enable them to get a, 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 a stronger position as they tried to move north and dominate all of the Levant. Egypt would crush Judah in a heartbeat if they had opportunity or occasion to do it. But here, Judah, they're on the verge of trying to make a covenant with death. They are trying to make a covenant with these evildoers, with their opponents, convincing themselves that if they do so, then they can delay death and they can trump the grave. But God says it's all going to be swept away by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue. This alliance, God says, will be a useless shelter, and they will end up, verse 20, like a man lying on a bed that's too short with a blanket that's too small. They're unable to get the rest that they crave. They're unable to get the shelter that they are seeking. And ultimately, they will end up in worse shape than when they started. If they wanted to know how their path would end, they need only watch to the north. And just in a few years, maybe even just a few months, they would see the veracity of Isaiah's words play out before them. The refuges that they sought through politics, the alliances they made with their enemies to guard them against another enemy, it would all be for nothing, and they too would be swept away. But like always, This is not just a cruel warning of a foreboding future. You understand that Isaiah preaches this 
as an invitation to repentance. Now, that's what we read in the last section of this chapter, isn't it? These agricultural images that are employed. A farmer acts violently towards the ground when he plows it, but he doesn't do it just for destruction's sake. The farmer acts violently towards his field that he might then sow in it, and it might then blossom and be full of life. A farmer acts violently towards grain as he threshes it, but he doesn't treat the same plant, different plants in the same way, but rather he treats it according to its kind, and never to destroy the seed, but only to perfect it for his purposes, right? You understand what God's saying here, that none of this is unnecessary on God's part. He's not warning of these things just to gloat over the future of His disobedient people. This is not an act of, of cruel boasting on God's part, like a farmer that just plows and plows and plows and plows his field. No. God is bringing this warning. He's even bringing this act of violence against northern Ephraim that something beautiful might result. We could even say that this is a word of comfort. For when Judah do not repent, and we know that they won't repent, and God knows that they won't repent, and yet He gives them this word that would be a word of comfort to them when this sweeping flood does now come down from the north and take over their kingdom an assuring word that tells them that it is not the will of the Lord to crush them, but it is all a means to an end, that they might see their sin, that they might repent of it, that they might return to the Lord. It's that golden thread of God's grace that runs throughout this book. You hear the gospel in the chapters we read it, verses 5 and 6, as the crown of Ephraim will be revealed to be nothing more than just tinfoil or a kid's party hat, the Lord of hosts will be shown as the great crown of glory that He truly is. And those who trusted in Him and not in the false securities of the world around them will be vindicated in Him on that day of destruction. But in that day of Israel's demise, that day when their refuges will fall like a house of cards, the Lord will be vindicated, and those who trust in Him will be enhanced and glorified by being with Him. All who look foolish in the eyes of the world, God said, will rest secure under His manifest sovereign glory. This is the gospel. That for those who trust in Him, there is security and satisfaction and joy to be found. They may be reviled now, but they will be vindicated then. Or verse 16, Behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. That image should immediately spark the synapses in your mind. What's he describing? He's describing a strong city. He's describing the city of God. He's picking up on that theme from the earlier passages. In contrast to the early city that will be wiped away, he's saying there's a city of God with a tested foundation that will stand strong, and whoever trusts in God will not need to flee on the day of destruction, but will find 
there's security in that place. Right? It's Psalm 46, isn't it? There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters His voice and the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. That's what, what He's saying. When we read this and it's all very interesting, but what do we do with it? Well, I think the first application of this is for us to just see the determination of God to keep covenant and bless His people. Right? The first thing that we need to see here is the mercy of God to His stubbornly willful people and a steadfastness and persistent loving kindness that simply refuses to be rid of his disobedient children. Do you remember when the kingdom of Israel was divided because of Solomon's apostasy? In 1 Kings 11, the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant, my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem I have chosen. Because of the covenant that God had made with David, one tribe, Judah, would remain in the Davidic line, and this persistent determination by God to bless Judah despite their sin is rooted in that promise. What God has said, that He will surely do, and the sin of man will not stop it. It was, of course, that same determination that through all of Judah's apostasy, even leading to the exile, would preserve the godly line from which the Messiah would be born 700 years later. God's Patience with Judah is the preserving grace of God that maintained the line into which Jesus was born. And so we see here this resolute determination by God to save His people from their sins and bring the fulfillment of His promises and bring Jesus the Savior that we so desperately need. And we see here that it is all of God's grace. Humanity didn't deserve a Savior. Even the covenanted people of God here don't deserve a Savior. That's being made manifestly and emphatically clear, but yet on the basis of God's gracious love and on that basis alone, He is determined to fulfill His promises and bring that Savior. But you understand, as we see that, we see the character of God being put on full display here. And in the midst of all of this judgment and destruction, we see a God who persists with His children. You see your God who persists with you. And as we said, all of this is in a sense 
gratuitous. None of it is necessary. God could have brought a simple word through Isaiah. Isaiah's message could have been as brief as Jonah's. Do you remember the sermon, if you can call it that, that Jonah preached at Nineveh? Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's it. That could have been Isaiah's message, right? That could have been the whole book of Isaiah. Maybe Isaiah 1 through 5 to give us some background, Isaiah 6 to give us his commission, and then yet 40 days in Jerusalem shall be overthrown. And we move on to the next book. That's all. That would have been fine. That would have been wonderful. That by itself would have been an act of God's grace as it was to Nineveh, enough for them to see their sin and to repent of it and to return to the Lord. But God doesn't just give them that simple, short word. Isaiah preaches that same message from different angles, urging the people of God to give up their worldly ways and cast themselves upon the Lord wholeheartedly. Right? Isaiah's central exhortation to love the Lord your, your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's one message, but God brings it to His people through this prophet a hundred different ways, some intellectual and theological, that eschatological vision of the previous few chapters, some concrete and here and now where God connects the dots for them and shows them directly the folly of their actions. Christian, you understand this is how God deals with you. And it's why your Bible has all of these different genres in it, and all of them proclaiming the same message. Every passage in the Bible telling you that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. Every passage in the Bible telling you that Jesus is a strong and sufficient Savior. Every passage in your Bible urging you to come and cast yourself upon Him by faith. It's one message. But it's a message that's sung in the Psalms. It's a message that's applied in the law. It's a message that's described in history. God coming at it a hundred different ways so that you get it and get it again and again and again. And it's how God deals with you and your experience too. Why is your experience as a Christian not just flat? A monotone life of blessing after blessing. It could be that, right? It could be just that God could, could take all of His children and just bring them into a situation where, where it's just this flat life of blessing after blessing. But He doesn't. Why not? Because you would lose sight of the riches of His grace to you. And so God brings in great joys and blessings. He brings you onto those highs so that you see Him as the giver of all good gifts and praise Him as that one who lavishes blessing and gifts upon His children, as Ephesians 1 tells us. But then He brings you into heartbreak, and He brings you into hardships, and He brings you into distress. As we saw in Sunday school, He is the God who will wound you like He wounded Jacob, not because He's cruel, 
but to give you a wound of grace so that you remember that He alone is the one in whom your security is found. He brings the mundane and the tedious into your life so that you remember that the world is not your home. At times, He chastises you and brings you to the very end of yourself, not because He's like a toddler playing with ants, but because He is kind. And as a kind father knows that there are times when you need to be shaken into seeing your pride and self-reliance and self-satisfaction so that you can repent of it and turn again to the Lord. What we see in this passage is how God has dealt historically with His faithless people. But we see here the character of God and how He deals with you, His faithless people. And we see His resolute determination never to be rid of you, but to come again and again and again and tell you of the gospel and show you the gospel and bid you to return to Him again and again. What Judah was doing is something that we are all tempted to do, to take our cues from the culture and believe that if only we could be like them, hidden away under the cover of cultural conformity, then we'll be okay. But ultimately, all that will fail, and it will only be those who trust in the Lord and hide themselves in Him who will be truly secure. May God teach us to see His mercy and grace and the kindness and the goodness of His character that we would run to Him with our eyes fixed on Christ and our hearts fixed on Christ, And Romans 8.32 is the anchor of our souls, knowing that He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Let us pray. Oh, Lord, how prone we are to wander and to leave the God we love. Oh, Lord, how foolish we are to go after the approval of this world. Oh, like Judah, we all must confess this morning that we have made covenants with death, that we have tried to hide secure in the places where the world tells us that there is security to be found. It is foolishness. Oh, give us a greater vision of your love and your kindness and your faithfulness and your goodness to us. Lord, help us to see you as you are, that we might praise you as we ought. Come and bless us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.